Well, the polls say that the number of Christians in America is declining. Is that true? Or is there more to the story? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the line of fire, 866-348-7884. Let me make sure uh, I am connected to get your calls. Any question of any kind that you want to ask me, anything you want to talk to me about that is relevant to the line of fire, be it political, cultural, spiritual, theological, biblical, exegetical, linguist, you know, the stuff we talk about here, 866-34-TRUTH. If you hear some weird attack on me online, you see some video attacking our ministry or some folks putting out bogus info, but it troubles you and you're concerned about it, give me a call. It's perfectly fine. I'm not offended. I have no issue. We love the truth. We love the truth and we follow it as best as we can by God's grace, wherever it leads. So, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Uh, I have a new article that is up today on the stream and askdrbrown.org. And this is the question I want to address. Is Christianity really in numerical decline in America? We're hearing this a lot. And this is steady in the polls for some years now, that the number of professing Christians in America is dropping dramatically over 10% in a decade while the, the number of those who are religiously non-affiliated is growing, the so-called nuns. It's not that they're necessarily atheist or agnostic, but that they don't identify with a religion. So are they the spiritual, not religious type? Are they those that have become fully agnostic or atheistic in their viewpoint? Their numbers are growing. That's certain. And the number of professing Christians is declining. Does that mean that Christianity in America is declining. Well, on the one hand, I know that in many churches there's been a superficial gospel message that's been preached for years, a consumer-oriented, what's-in-it-for-me message that bypasses the cross, that is either a very weak gospel or entirely another gospel, and that is going to produce bad fruit. So if those numbers were declining, that wouldn't surprise me. But but let's let's look at some of the stats from the latest poll from Pew Forum, released just a few days ago, and then let's break them down and analyze them, because I think what we're going to see is, is very, very interesting here. So Pew Research Center poll reported on October 19th, and I quote, the religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip. And Pew Research Center telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share of the population consisting of people who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26% up from 17% in 2009. So look at this. 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians, down 12 percentage points over the past decade. So 
percent in 2009, now 65 percent. That's that's a precipitous drop. That's tens of millions of people. Additionally, the poll states both Protestantism and Catholicism are experiencing losses of population share. Currently, 43 percent of U.S. adults identify with Protestantism, down from 51 percent in 2009, and one in five adults, 20 percent, are Catholic down from 23% in 2009. And, and here's the thing that strikes me as the most significant. Um, it is what happens with the millennials. Let's keep reading in this article here, all right? Let's, let's look at what's happening with the millennials. More than 8 in 10 members of the silent generation, those born between 1928 and 1945, describe themselves as Christians, 84%, as do three-quarters of baby boomers, 76%. In stark contrast, only half of millennials, 49%, describe themselves as Christians, 4 in 10 are religious nuns, and 1 in 10 millennials identify with non-Christian faiths. We won't look at the charts that are posted in the, uh, in the Pew Forum article, but it's very graphic, it's very clear. When you look at this, not just the numbers, but the older Americans identifying as Christians in much higher percentage— the younger Americans not identifying as Christians in shockingly high percentages in terms of the shift, the contrast. There, there's no question that there's a real problem in terms of the younger generation hearing the message of the gospel. Why are younger Americans turned away from the faith? Well, some of it is social issues, moral cultural issues, that Christian views are perceived as bigoted or antiquated. It's a Bronze Age book, a Bronze Age God. How dare you put your values on us? There's no question that's some of what is going on. And, and a lot of hypocrisy in the church and, and politi- politicization of the gospel so that the church is identified with the political party or with the president. So those things, there's going to be pressure, there's going to be flack. No question that some of that is happening. But there's another stat which strikes me, and it makes me wonder if it is so much the number of Christians in America declining as perhaps something else going on. So as I, as I scroll down in the article, here's, here's what Pew tells us, and I, and I have this in my article on the stream at AskDrBrown.org. Are you ready for this? Self-described Christians report that they attend religious services at about the same rate today as in 2009. So listen to this. Today, 62% of Christians say they attend services at least once or twice a month, which is identical to the share, (coughs) excuse me, who said the same in 2009. In other words, the nation's overall rate of religious attendance is declining, not because Christians are attending church less often, rather because there are now fewer Christians as a share of the population. Now, I'm not looking at this in detailed statistical analysis form because that's not my field. I I am not an experienced pollster. I'm looking at things more on on an anecdotal level. But as I travel around America, uh, as I preach in large churches, many of them— serious gospel-preaching churches. I mean, they wouldn't have me if they were into a flaky, superficial message. I'd be too much of a threat to them to come in, nor would they want me to come in and and talk about the controversial issues. I'm preaching in these churches, and and many of them thriving 
many of them adding services, adding locations, satellite campuses, and things like that. And then I have other friends that are uh, doing house church movements, and they're seeing growth in, in the small settings, in the house settings, and, peop- and people coming to the Lord, new people converted and coming to the faith. So I'm thinking, okay, the one hand we hear about this mass exodus, on the other hand, there are places I go one after another that are thriving, that are healthy, that are strong, that are growing. And from what I can tell, they are not just the exceptions to the rule. They're not just the outliers. They're not just the ones on the outside that are defying the norm. So here's what I think is happening, at least on some level. I think what, what's happening, yeah, let's, let's just put that graph up, Kai, for those that are watching on YouTube or Facebook. Here's a graph that compares uh, monthly attendance among Christians, little chains in rates of church attendance. So the overall number of professing Christians down, but church attending Christians in terms of percentage, they're still around the same. All right. So those attending monthly or more, 62%. And, and then it breaks down 10 years ago. And today, numbers very, very similar. Just a, a, a little bit smaller number of those people than before. So, yes, I understand that the larger population professing Christians are lower, but I think this is a lot of what's happening. Nominal Christians are no longer identifying as Christians. Those who were never really Christians, those who were never really committed to the Lord, those who were never really saved, those who never really followed the authority of Scripture, those who were not regular committed churchgoers, that they are dropping out, that they are bleeding members that there are less and less of them. And we know for a fact that the so-called mainline denominations that have gone liberal, they are the ones in steady decrease in numbers, whereas for the most part, from what I can see, those that are preaching a living faith, those that are preaching the Jesus of the Scriptures, those that are looking to the power of the Holy Spirit to back His Word, those who are seeking to live this out, they're seeing increase. They're seeing growth. They're seeing people coming. One of my colleagues has done these meetings that have drawn thousands of people in different parts of the country, really going after God, seeking to turn to him, turn away from sin, encounter God afresh. We did one in Canada last year, and I said, boy, this was an awesome turnout. I'd love to see more young people. He said, oh, when I do them in the States with other speakers, that's all we see is young people. He said, I'm glad to see some older people. So I'm talking about younger people flocking to the real message. So as I was writing this article last night, I thought back to two articles I had written in 2015. What I didn't realize is one was in April, one was in May of 2015. And, and one of them was called The Terrible Failure of the Secular Gospel. The Terrible Failure of the Secular Gospel. And in that article, I pointed to theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg, German theologian, who in the 1970s uh, said something very, very interesting. He said, religion that is more of the same is not likely to be very interesting. In other words, if the church is like the world, then why would the people of the world be drawn to the church? If Christianity is very similar to the philosophy of the age, then why would people leave everything to follow something that's just like their normal lives? He observed this in the 70s as to why liberal churches were not growing and conservative churches were. I don't mean dead conservatism. I mean a living relationship with God, faith in Scripture, living Jesus, Holy Spirit moving, not just the form, but the substance. 
those churches are growing, especially around the world. Then I wrote 2015, another article, why conservative churches are still growing. Why conservative churches are still growing. And I pointed to a book written by Dean Kelly that Dr. Al Mohler had mentioned during a radio interview I had with him. And, and here's what Dean Kelly wrote in the 70s. Amid the current neglect and hostility toward organized religion in general, the conservative churches holding to seemingly outmoded theology and making strict demands on their members have equaled or surpassed in growth the early percentage increases of the nations and population. As for the liberal churches, he stated, in the 70s, 72, I think, the mainline denominations will continue to exist on a diminishing scale for decades, perhaps for centuries, and will continue to supply some people with a dilute and undemanding form of meaning, which may be all they want. That's why they're declining. This has been a trend for decades. It could be the exact same thing happening today. God of light, hear our cry, It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm uh, holding in my hands the new commentary on Job. We've got advanced copies here ready to sign and send out to you. Check that on our website, AskDrBrown.org, with the signed numbered copies Beautiful book, beautifully produced. When, when I gave it to Nancy, when I got the first copy of the mail, she goes, oh, paper's really nice. So it's, it's, it's a beautifully produced $50 volume, about 450 pages. And I worked on it on and off for eight years, an intensive editing process to make this fully readable for each of you that wants to dig in to the Word together. So I'm going to tell you more about this in a moment. In fact, I'm going to read Chapter 1 from my translation uh, one of the hardest things I ever did was was translate Job. I mean, anyone translating Job knows it's really, really challenging. But you know, when you're when you're just focused on the book and you know the many different ways a verse could be understood and the controversies and to to land on something and then to to want to honor the Lord with it because this is sacred scripture and it it was a wonderful challenge. I hope that readers will be enriched. So I want to share some insights with you. But phone lines are open. Any question of any kind that you want to ask me, please, by all means, give me a call, 866-34-TRUTH. We will go over to Colombia, South America. Camilo, thanks so much for calling the line of fire. Uh, Yes, hello. Hello, sounds like you're sitting right next to me, Camilo. Loud and clear. Okay, perfect. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, so my question is regarding, um, I mean, God loves me versus God is mad at me or yes. uh, angry at me, I guess. Um, because, I mean, to give you a little bit more of context, um, I was saved uh, in a charismatic uh, church. I was raised as a Catholic, like pretty much everybody in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, when my, the, the message that I got was, okay, God loves you. But you need you're a sinner, you need to repent uh, and and if you ask for for forgiveness, he will uh, forgive you and you you'll you'll be saved and that's it. I understood it i I received that uh, but something that i I've seen is that uh, there are other uh, Christians uh, that share a different message like God is angry at you, uh, especially when evangelizing or something uh, it's like 
you know, the, the wrath is coming and things like that. So I'm kind of, I, I, I never got that message. I never received that. So I, I quite don't understand um, where they're coming from. Maybe you can help me with that. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just uh, looking for a quote that I want to read to you from my book, Hyper Grace, a quote from A.W. Tozer. So um, while we're talking, I'm just going to grab that as as well. So let's put this in two different categories. God's disposition towards, towards a lost sinner in rebellion and God's disposition towards one of his own children in Jesus. All right? So... Are you a parent, Camila? Do you have any children? I do, yes. Uh, okay. All right. Can you simultaneously love your child and be displeased with your child or love your child and be angry with your child? Can you do that simultaneously? Uh, sure, yes. <laughs> of course. Right. So in the same way, there is no condemnation for a those of us in Jesus. In other words, God's wrath is not hanging over our heads. If you are a born-again child of God, you are forgiven and beloved. His wrath is not hanging over your head. The day of judgment is not hanging over you, that that's the day when you get condemned to hell. There is no damnation for you as a believer in Jesus. At the same time, we can displease the Lord. For example, Ephesians 4 the end of that chapter urges us not to grieve the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit of God by wrong attitudes and things like that, wrong actions. So, And when we get to Revelation 2 and 3, we see the Lord strongly rebuking some of the, the congregations in Asia Minor, some very stern rebukes for Thyatira, stern rebukes for Sardis, for Laodicea, even a stern rebuke for Ephesus, having left its first love. So... God can be displeased with us, even angry with us, but it's not wrath. It's, it's not eternal judgment. It's not damnation. It's, it's fatherly love. That's disp- I'm not pleased with that. This is not good. All right? So God, can, the same way that we can show love and anger at the same time, but perfectly sanctified. On God's level, it's always perfect. There's nothing carnal or fleshly about it. Yes, God's not always pleased with us. God's not uh, always happy with us, right? And and But that's as his children. In other words, it's not the way he deals with the lost. It's not the way you deal with your neighbor's kid that's acting up. These are kids for whom Jesus died. The, God's affection and love is set on us more than any other created being in the whole universe. But in the midst of that, he's a loving father and a good father. And sometimes he'll discipline us. And sometimes he's displeased with us. And he can be angry over something that I did, but it's always going to be expressed through love towards me. So does that make sense in terms of us as believers and how he deals with us? Yes, yes. Actually, actually, that's what I'm struggling with. Uh, not um, in terms of us as believers, but more uh, when you're talking to somebody who, you know, is not saved and you're evangelizing uh, if you if you say like uh, God is angry at you, is that correct or is that uh, it's not bibl- not biblically correct? Or yes, if, I, if someone sure. is right, if if God does love the world and He sent His Son to die for the world, but yes, He is angry with the wicked. That that is that is something that is steady. God is grieved over human rebellion. 
and he is angered by it. Now, now here's situation is different. All right, you might have some person, let's say um, some some girl that was was beaten and raped, and she's confused and hurting, and she's fallen into drug addiction, and she's falling into lesbianism, and she's falling into self destructive behavior, and she's crying out for help. Well, God's not angry. You know, what are you? How dare you cut yourself? That, no, his his heart is yearning to to bring her to repentance. She's self condemned already. I would tell that person, listen, you fall short, you sin. We all have fallen short. God sent Jesus to die for you. God loves you so intensely. He wants to forgive you and heal you and set you free and give you wholeness and purpose. I'm going to talk in a very different way to a defiant sinner. I'm going to warn a defiant sinner. Someone's like, get God away from me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't you dare put your junk on me, man. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You know, no, no God is going to tell me what to do. I said, listen, you're going to answer to God. The God you deny, you're going to stand before one day, and you will be judged, and you will be found guilty. But there's mercy, and then you preach mercy. You preach the cross. So you want people to understand you are guilty of sin in the sight of God. You can do it by looking at the Scripture, saying, do you, do you believe in the words? Do you, do you like the words of Jesus? Yeah, I think Jesus was cool. All right, and you start to read the Sermon on the Mount to them. It's like, oh, God, I'm in trouble. Or do you think, like, the Ten Commandments are good? Yeah, yeah basically. Okay, well, let's go through those. And you know, Oh, man, I'm in trouble. So you want them to understand yeah. <laughs> not so much that God is angry with them, but that they are guilty in his sight and will one day be judged. But the cross has paid for all their sins. That's what you want to emphasize. So I don't see in the New Testament that in the messages to the lost, there is a constant God's angry with you, God's angry with you, as much as you are guilty and you have sinned and you will be judged. Is God angry with the wicked? Yes. But again, many people are struggling. They want help. They're looking for help. I'm not going to hit them over the head with God's angry with you. They're self-condemned. I'm going to tell them there's a way out. There's hope, a brand new life in Jesus where you live the rest of your life doing the will of God. So hopefully that'll clarify things for you. I just want to read this one quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, always remember, this is for believers, that God is easy to get along with. And if your heart is right, he is not too concerned with the formula. God is kind and good and gracious because there are some of us who are just too hard to get along with. If God were as hard to get along with as we are, there would be a perpetual quarrel between our souls and God. God has to be easy to live with, and he knows, and if he knows you mean right, he will let you make all sorts of mistakes. So he's talking about you know, religious order and how do you conduct your service and so on, and he will not care. And then he says this, God knows that the most mature of us still need coddling sometimes, and so he is quick to overlook our ignorance, but he is never quick to overlook our sins. The threatening aspect of our lives is sin, and so God is quick to leap on the scene and deal with it. And he said, a man by his sin may waste himself, which is to waste that which on earth is most like God. That is man's greatest tragedy and God's heaviest grief. So hopefully that clarifies some things for you. And I wouldn't just say to every sinner, God loves you and leave it there. And I wouldn't say to every sinner, God's angry with you. I would do my best to preach an appropriate message. But again, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin. All right, of course he convicts the believers but he's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to make them understand their guilt. He's going to expose their lack of righteousness, 
and point them to the cross as the only hope. People will not come running to the cross unless they realize their guilt. People will not come running to the cross unless they know they're bound. People will not come running to the cross unless they know that judgment awaits them and the cross is the way of escape. This is not just like a better deal. Like, life is pretty good, but with Jesus, it can be even better. That's not the gospel. And that's not why Jesus died. Hey, God bless you in Colombia, South America, dear brother. For those who want to dig in more deeply, my book, Hyper Grace, I think you'll find very, very helpful in that regard, exposing the dangers of the modern grace message. Thank you for the call. We'll get right back to your calls. And I'm going to share some from my Job translation on the other side of the break. 866-348-7884. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on The Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Phone lines are open. Just looking at our questions here. Boy, a great range of wonderful questions. I'm going to get to hopefully every one of them in the next few minutes or every one that we can 866-348-7884. I'm still not commenting on the impeachment hearings. Let everything come to light. Let the truth come to light. I'm not comfortable with hearings that affect the president of the United States and the direction of the nation being held in secret, and you don't even know who the people are involved. I'm not at home with that at all. Let the truth come to light, for better or worse. For let God's will be done with President Trump. May the will of God be done with President Trump in the direction of the nation and the Republican Party, Democrat Party. May the will of God be done. May his best plan come to pass, which is a plan that ultimately is for the exaltation of Jesus and for the good of those that look to him. And really, when Jesus is exalted, it's good for all except those that rebel against him. All right, before we go to the phones, let me read to you from my Job commentary, if you wonder the subtitle, The Faith to Challenge God, what's that about? Yeah, it's one of the great insights about the book of Job, and one that we really open up. So let me just read to you Job chapter 1 as, uh, as I translated it. And, and I did my best to render things in ways that brought out the meaning of the Hebrew if, if the English wasn't as smooth as it could have been, but I could bring out the Hebrew better, I, I chose to do that. But I did my best to make it good English as well. There once was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job. And this man was full of integrity and upright. By the way, full of integrity is a very major theme in the book. He feared God and turned away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a large number of servants. So this man was greater than anyone else in the East. It was the custom of his sons to hold a feast, each when his turn came around, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had run their course, Job would send for his children and have them richly purify. And he would get up early in the morning and sacrifice burnt offerings for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children sinned and cursed God in their hearts 
This is what Job did all the time. On a particular day, the divine beings came to present themselves before Yahweh, which I just have as W-H, excuse me, Y-H-W-H, and the adversary came along with them. Yahweh said to the adversary, where have you come from? The adversary answered Yahweh, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Yahweh said to the adversary, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on the earth, a man full of integrity and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. The adversary answered Yahweh, it's God's Job for God for nothing? You put a protective hedge around him, his family and all that he has. You've you blessed the work of his hands, so his possessions have spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Yahweh said to the adversary, All right then, everything he has is in your power. Just don't raise your hand against him. The adversary then left the presence of Yahweh. On a particular day, Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother when a messenger came to Job and said, The the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby them. When the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them, they struck the servants with the sword, and I escaped, I alone, to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up and devoured the sheep and the servants, and I escaped, I alone, to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans divided up into three bands. They made a raid and carried off the camels, and they struck the servants with the sword, and I escaped, I alone, to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother, when suddenly a mighty wind came from across the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I escaped, I alone, to tell you. Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, prostrated himself in worship, and said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked will I return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh took away. May Yahweh's name be praised. And all this, Job did not sin or attribute anything unseemly to God. What, what an amazing chapter. What an amazing book. Uh, it continues to thrill me as I've taught on Job while writing the commentary and, and now taught messages from Job since writing the commentary. It thrills me. It, it excites me. And to open it up and to see it open up to people is, is really amazing. What a privilege to be in the service of God, teaching and preaching his word. What a sacred privilege. I am truly thankful. And for all of you who support our work, thank you, thank you. From the heart, thank you. Together, by God's grace, we're making a difference in many lives. All right, to the phones, starting with Robert in Oregon. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I've appreciated your ministry over the decades. Thank you, sir. And I guess what I have to say is I have... uh, a question about a couple of passages of Scripture? Yeah. And the Go first ahead. one is First Samuel 19. That starts at the 18th verse, and it's where uh, David fled, and he's gone to Samuel uh, at Ramah. And yep. then Saul sends messengers three times to take them, and they end up prophesying. Yep. And then Saul comes, and he strips off his clothes, and he lays down all night uh, what do you make of that? I don't. I don't really know what to make of that passage. Yeah, right there. Uh, it's uh, kind of strange. An, yeah, it's an interesting passage. Obviously, there was the humbling of Saul, and hence the the stripping off of his clothes is is part of just a humbling of of this king who's who's in wickedness. Uh, you know, beyond that, your speculation is is as good as my speculation. You know what I'm saying? There's was there an ancient or eastern custom? Was there some sacred? Why was it? It's, to me, it's much more of God just humbling him uh, in his sin, stripping him uh, down, 
and and then the he was a child of God. He was an Israelite, right? He was the king, and God had access to him as desired, and the spirit could move on him at times. Uh, and it's it seems at times he had a relationship with God, so he just got near this place where God was moving, and he got caught up in the vortex of it. It's like what happens in revival where. As Winky Prattney described it, you have a divine radiation zone. It's just like God is there in a pronounced and unusual way. And as a result of that, uh, people experience God very, very intensely. So that seems to be what happened. As people got close, the Holy Spirit came on them, and he, and he spoke. Through. Remember also, God can speak through whomever he wants to, whether the person has relationship with God or not. You know, John 11, there's a prophetic word given through Caiaphas, uh, and right. it, it's not that he was prophesying as a righteous man, but as the high priest, the Holy Spirit was upon him for that particular task. So I, I see something similar with the king here. I wouldn't read anything more into it in terms of whether he knew the Lord or not as much as he was the king and God chose to speak through him. And the stripping of his clothes is obviously a humbling thing. If there's more in the text beyond that, I'm, it's only speculation to me. And, uh, well, thank you for that. And then my second question would be uh, Luke 16. I guess they always call it the par- parable of the unjust steward. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of get it. But then it said, in verse 8, it says, then the one well, reading out of King James, it says that the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now, if I read back a little bit, it seems to me that he's kind of, uh, he knows he's going to lose his job, so he's kind of cheating his old master. Yep. In order to get in good with a, a potential employer, why would his soon-to-be ex-boss commend him? I, I'm not getting that. Got it. All right. So Jesus, the reason it's a controversial parable is because it, you get the idea that Jesus is commending the dishonesty, which he's not. He's just using this as an illustration to say how wise the people of the world are. So let us use godly wisdom with our resources, with our money. Uh, to make eternal friends. So first the application, and then your specific question. The application is just like this guy used his earthly, worldly wisdom to gain friends after he was fired from his job. So the same way, we we should use the wisdom that God gives us to get eternal friends. So use earthly resources with the wisdom God's given us to give eternal friends when we're out of this world. But the reason that the boss commends him is, is obviously the boss is a worldly guy. It's like very clever, well done. Ah, yeah, okay, you know, you, yeah, you you caught, and, and maybe he figured, hey, I got I got my money in full. You know, I I only got part of it, but at least I got it. You know, and maybe you this guy it, w- yeah. wouldn't have paid it off. So it's yeah, just like, yeah, I, I can kind of get that now. Oh wow, yeah, and okay, it's, super, it, yeah, yeah, and it, it it would be like you know if 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 you got you know you're a little bit of a rough tough guy. And somebody shoves you, and he punches you, and knocks you down. It's like, good shot, man. Nicely done. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Cause, yeah, that's so good. it's pretty yeah, good. Yeah. Right. Two guys kind of talk in the same language there. Hey, thank you for the kind words, Got Robert. It. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Alex in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you. So uh, I had a quick question. So I just went through Isaiah uh, during my Bible reading plan, tried to read it uh, with kind of an open mind, especially mm-hmm. in regards to Isaiah 53 and talking about the servant of the Lord. Yeah. And uh, and I, I utilized a lot of your videos with a lot of questions that came up as I was reading about, like, 
what about this? What about that? How does that refer to Jesus and these types of things? Very helpful. Thank you so much for those videos. Um, but there is, there's one verse that I didn't hear you address and Mm -hmm. I could have missed it, but it's specifically, uh, Isaiah 49, three. So you talked a lot in your videos about, um, how, if you really want to understand who the servant of the Lord is, we'll also read the chapters around it. And it really does paint a very full picture of Jesus. But that verse specifically says that the servant is Israel and so I just kind of want to hear your explanation about that and how that speaks to or doesn't speak to uh, the servant to the Lord in Isaiah 53. Oh, yeah, it absolutely does. And, and I'm glad the videos and materials were of help. And yes, I've addressed Isaiah 49.3 uh, many a time um, in going through these texts in answering Jewish objections to Jesus, volume 3, and in other videos where I look at the various verses on the servant of the Lord. So it starts off in verse 1, clearly talking to an individual. And in fact, standard rabbinic interpretation says that the servant there is the prophet that's being spoken to, an individual who is the okay. prophet. All right, that's how they start. So what do the rabbis do with verse 3? You are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Well, what they say is that the servant represented Israel. It was as if the glory of Israel was represented in this one person. And remember, Israel was also somebody's name, Jacob, Israel, right? So yeah. the servant oh, okay. here is is an individual who represents the nation, who fulfills the task and the mission of the nation, which is obviously exactly what the Messiah does. Now, the key thing is to keep reading, because as you keep reading, starting in verse 4, down through verse 6, it is the mission of this individual servant to regather the tribes of Jacob and restore those in Israel who were scattered. So the servant is an individual within Israel who represents the nation, whose calling is to regather the nation. Stay right there, Alex. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, Daniel, you just commented on Facebook about is Christianity declining in America? You said it's, it's not a decline, it's a separation. Yeah, I, I believe that as well, and that's what I wrote in my article, my most recent article, which you could read at AskDrBrown.org or at Stream.org. So, uh, Alex, just one more second. When you keep reading through Isaiah 49, it's unmistakably clear that the servant is an individual with a mission to Israel and to the nations. And because of that, rabbinic interpreters also understand verse 3 the way, I, the way I understand it, which is the individual is called Israel because that individual is viewed as representing Israel or carrying the task of Israel, or if the glory of Israel was concentrated in that, which to me further confirms the messianic nature of it and reminds us that the Messiah fulfills Israel's destiny. But since this individual servant is tasked with regathering the nation, it's obviously not the nation tasked with regathering the nation. It's a righteous individual tasked with regathering the nation. So that's how that passage works out. All right? Got it. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to India. Uh, Ianid, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Uh, Please tell us how to pronounce your name. 
yeah, it's Ronit. I had calls from uh, before from Bangalore. Oh, Bangalore. Okay, got it. All right. I remember we talked pretty recently. Yes, your question, please. Yes. So my question was uh, surrounding uh, uh, the translation of Alma, like in Isaiah seven fourteen. So I've heard some arguments from Rabbi Tobia Singer saying that uh, Christians mistranslate the word Alma and that Matthew gets it wrong and that is the word actually means young woman and not virgin. So I just wanted a clarification on that. Uh, yes. The first thing is Matthew, and Matthew 1 is simply quoting from the Septuagint, and the Septuagint translates Alma with Parthenos, which would normally be rendered virgin. So Matthew, writing in Greek, is quoting the Greek-Jewish translation that was currently used in his day. That's the first thing. The second thing is the word Alma in and of itself has to do with youthfulness, uh, probably a woman coming into puberty. It can be used of a man. LM is the male equivalent. Uh, and whenever it's used in the Hebrew Bible, it's used of a woman who is unmarried. So it, it's speaking of a youthful woman. And Rashi, the foremost Jewish commentator, in his commentary says that the sign of, of Isaiah 7.14, was that she was just an Alma and it wasn't suitable for her to give birth. So there's something striking about the usage, which apparently got the attention of the Greek Jewish translators, and they translated it as virgin. The word in and of itself does not mean virgin, but in biblical Hebrew, there is no one word in and of itself which always means virgin. You say, well, what about betulah? But two law in legal contexts refers to a virgin. But you'll have, for example, Bahurim and Bitulot, young men and young women. Bitulah just meaning young woman. Uh, Bitulah is used most likely of a, of, a, of a widow in Joel chapter 1, verse 8. So there is no Hebrew word in and of itself which has to mean virgin. You would need what's called circumlocution, a periphrasis, where you say, she was an Alma who never knew a man, or she was a Petulah who never knew a man, if you wanted to explicitly and definitely say it had to be a virgin. But Alma in and of itself would point to a young woman of marriageable age, but presumably not married and therefore presumably virgin. Now, does that mean she's pregnant now, so it's a miraculous sign, or this woman who is an Alma now will be pregnant in the future? All those things can be debated. But the, the translation issue is not even the big thing because the, the central part of the prophecy is not just that it's an Alma, it's a larger thing about judgment on the house of David and yet God coming to redeem and God being with us in the person of Emmanuel. Um, if you have an email address, sir, if you could leave it with Howard, our call screener, and Howard, just send me the email address. I'll know what to do with it. I want to send you some links. I'll have... Uh, one of the brothers that uh, has a PhD in Old Testament and is fluent in Hebrew, Russian, and English. I'd love for him to interact with you directly. So if you stay right there, I want to send you a couple of links, sir, where we get into this in greater depth. And then if you have further questions, you can write directly to Egal uh, on my team, and he will be glad to help you because based on the previous time you called, I remember you calling from India. Um, obviously, you've got some very in-depth questions, and I want to make sure that we satisfy you with in-depth answers, okay? So stay there. It'll be a moment. Howard will get you. Just give
give me your email address. That's all you need to do with your, your name, email address. I'll know what it's about, and we will get your questions answered in depth with links and all of that, okay? So stay right there until Howard comes on to get to you. Um, all right, not going to give out the number because phone lines are jammed and we've got limited time. Let's go to Hilton in Illinois. Thank you so much for calling the line of fire. Hello, sir. It's a pleasure meeting you. Um, I have a, I'm have an evangelist. We have a, a evangelist outreach in Waukegan, Illinois, every Wednesday at the courthouse called mm. Courtside Ministries. And I've discovered, I also met you on the plane uh, a few years ago, uh, but um, I've found it very effective when people are preaching the gospel that we preach the gospel like a kingdom, because mm-hmm. a, a lot of times when people preach the gospel like a religion, um, they have this formula, admit, believe, confess, and it's just become more of a religion in about a one-time event instead of a c- continuous glorious present where Jesus is king and his supremacy rules our, our hearts. Everywhere in the Bible, it seems like it, where it says Lord, Lord means ownership, where he has complete authority. Um, Adonai, Lordship, uh, absolute authority. And I think in America, we've, we've limited the gospel because we've cheapened it because we've devalued who Jesus is. And I found that the gospel, when you preach the gospel like it's supposed to be, like a kingdom, more people truly get saved, and it, and it sticks, because they're, appro- they're approaching God on, their, on, on His terms, not our own terms. And so, uh, uh, basically, uh, when we're preaching the gospel, it's just as a kingdom, as He's King, He's Lord. Because He created everything, therefore He owns everything, and because He owns everything, He must be Lord. Um, and, and so I approach it that way, and when you, we approach Him as the Creator, it lays a proper foundation of approaching Him. Right, as opposed to, here's Jesus knocking on our door. He's out in the cold. It's rainy. We're, we're in this nice warm room with a fireplace. Will we please open the door and let poor Jesus in? We're, we're turning things right. around. And, and look, let me just say this first, Hilton. To the extent we just exalt Jesus in our preaching, we're doing well. You know what I'm saying? If you just preach a message that he is, he is king, he is risen, he is triumphant, he sits at the right hand of the Father, etc., and you just lift him up and you start there, we, we're already on a massive right track. But then from there, when we, when we now preach that we've sinned against this Lord, that we're guilty in yeah. his sight, that he has every right to judge us, and yet he died for us. Now that's a gospel yeah. message. Now there's some yeah. substance to that. Now there's some weight there it to it. Yeah, so starting with mm-hmm. who he is, exalting him as Lord, and then the gospel unfolding from there, our guilt is magnified. His love is magnified. So amen, man. Preach it. Mm-hmm. And also one more thing, too, is that um, we talk about, we don't hear too much of the gospel, but he says that our sins were imputed to him. And what I say is that Jesus became like the sponge of God. God used his body to be like a sponge to absorb our sins, past, present, future, in that body. And when his body died, our sin died with him, the judgment that we deserve died with it. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, so that we who are in Christ will be the righteousness of God in Christ, and he gives us new life. And so um, the aspect of imputing our sins were put on him in his body, it says in Romans, and then he did away with that sin. He broke the—we're no longer on the law of sin and death. And now we have the power— to live a righteous life, a life holy, desire and the power to live for God. And that's transformation. And I tell you, the Holy Spirit, every time we, I just, we preach it like that, I see more change. The Spirit, Spirit of God just moves on people, and there's mm. a real conviction 
of sin uh, and real, I believe, the foundation for, for revival. And I believe if we start preaching the gospel, not like a religion, because it's not a religion, it's a relationship, it's a covenant kingdom relationship with Yahweh God, uh, and, his whole, and he's holy, um, and, and I believe it's going to be the foundation of a new way of preaching the gospel, and that I think it's going to turn the nation on the right side. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, I mean, Hilton. A lot of what you're talking about is is back to the basics, back to the fundamentals, the death and resurrection of Jesus, preaching the reality of the kingdom of God, exalting Him as Lord, recognizing the power of what He did on the cross, dying for our sins, rising a new life. We die to sin with Him. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law of sin and death. We now come into the righteousness of God through the Messiah and are empowered by Him to live righteous lives. Yeah, that's, that's the gospel. Absolutely so. By the way, uh, N.T. Wright, brilliant New Testament scholar with some emphases that I would differ with and others that I would applaud, uh, his book, God Be- How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels, I've only read parts of that, so I, I can't say more than that, but I was reminded of that uh, concept of kingship and, of course, lordship as, as you were speaking. All right, listen, friends, we are out of time, but... Uh, Joshua, Brandon, Connor, as I'm looking at my call screen here, if you're able to call in on, on Friday, unless it's Jewish-related, then tomorrow, I will look for you guys and, and put you at the top of the list and try to get to you first. Uh, we try to get to everyone we can, but obviously every day there are folks we can't get to. So since your names are the first three in order up here, uh, so we'll take note of that, all right? Try to get through and keep your focus on the Lord, friends, May Jesus be exalted as supreme in your heart, my heart, our lives, for his glory. Amen. Back with you tomorrow. Special guest John Burnus joining me from Jewish Voice.